This morning I would ask you to turn with me in your copy of the Holy Scripture to Genesis 25, Genesis chapter number 25. We are first introduced to Abraham in Genesis 12, and this morning now we will say farewell to Abraham in Genesis 25. The scripture before us reads like an obituary. It tells us of Abraham's death and of his descendants, and it always strikes me when I read an obituary how the totality of a man's life is reduced to a few lines. It begins perhaps with some dates, the date of birth and the date of death, and then a list of names, those who have preceded the one in death and those who have survived him after his death. But what about the dash? The dash between the two dates, the dash that represents the totality of a a man's life, the time between his birth and his death. Of course, it's impossible to report on all of one's life with a few words in an obituary. However, Hebrews 11 verses 8 and 9 summarizes Abraham's life pretty well as it was read just a moment ago. By faith, Abraham obeyed. When he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance, and he went out, not knowing where he was going, by faith he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country. Ultimately, we need more than an obituary. Ultimately, we need more than a summary. We really, what we need is a biography, and so in the wisdom of God, he gave us that biography, the biography of Abraham as recorded for us here in the pages of Genesis, and over the last many weeks, we have learned of Abraham's life of faith, the ups and the downs of his journey, and what is it that we learned? We learned that Abraham's God was faithful to him through the ups and the downs. And I hope that you've learned more of Abraham's God than you even have of of Abraham himself. And perhaps, like Abraham, you feel that your life journey is one of ups and downs. You are lost and lonely in a foreign land, wandering by faith in the promises of God. It's a long road. You can't see the end of that road. But may it be that when your story is told, whether by obituary or summary or biography, it will be a story of God's faithfulness to you in your life. So now this morning we've come to the very last chapter in that biography of Abraham. Genesis 25, verses one through 11, a message I've prepared titled, Abraham and the Partings of Faith. Let's pause for prayer and then we'll study God's holy word. God in heaven, we thank you for your amazing love. God, we thank you for your amazing grace toward us, and that while our sins are many, your mercy is more, and we are amazed by that. We thank, thank you for that. We thank you, God, for your faithfulness that was demonstrated to Abraham over the course of the ups and downs of his life. We thank you for your faithfulness to us in the ups and downs of our lives. And God, now as we come to the Holy Scripture and we read and we study and we learn, May we be amazed, not by the man Abraham, but by his God. For I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. 
Genesis 25 verses 1 through 11 covers the last 35 years of Abraham's life. In those final 35 years of Abraham's life, there is no special revelation from God to Abraham. There are no tests or trials from God for Abraham. It's a rather uneventful record that serves as a text of transition, a text of transition from one generation to the next generation of God's people. In fact, that's how the book of Genesis is divided by generations. And the word generations is used in Genesis to frame the progressive history that it records. And there are 10 generations given to us in Genesis which mark the divisions of the book. And let me take a moment and survey them for you just quickly before you on the screen. The generations of the heaven and the earth beginning in chapter two, verse number four. The generations of Adam beginning in chapter five. The generations of Noah in chapter six. The generations of the sons of Noah. The generations of Shem. The generations of Terah which is mainly of his son Abraham. The generations of Ishmael, chapter 25, beginning in verse number 12. The generations of Isaac, of which a large section of that is about his son Jacob's experiences. The generations of Esau. The generations of Jacob, which is the history of Jacob's son Joseph. And you see how the book of Genesis is is categorized and divided in in these ways. Next week, we'll begin studying the the generations of of Isaac in chapter 25, verse 19. But this morning, we say goodbye to that great patriarch, Abraham, beginning in verse number one. Look at chapter 25, verse number one. Abraham, again, took a wife, and her name was Keturah. Now, after Sarah's death, In chapter 23, it's also referenced in the last verse there of chapter 24, if you see it there at the end of chapter 24, Abraham decided to remarry. Now, God's intent for marriage is one man and one woman for life until death do us parts. Paul explained to the Romans, the woman who has a husband is bound by law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. Therefore, it's honorable for a widow or a widower to remarry. And we would celebrate that union as a picture of Jesus Christ and his church. However, the problem in this case, the problem in chapter 25 verse 1, is that Keturah was something other than a wife. She was something less than a wife. First Chronicles 1 verse 32 tells us that Keturah was, was actually Abraham's concubine. A concubine was partially wife, partially less than a wife, a woman of secondary status, even a female slave. Ultimately, if you look at verse number six, the Bible tells us that Keturah wasn't, wasn't Abraham's only concubine, but that Abraham had multiple concubines in verse number six. And so I would offer you this, Abraham's decision, number one, was unwise. His decision to marry or take Keturah as his wife slash concubine was unwise because I submit that Abraham should have learned his lesson many years earlier after, after the devastation surrounding his relationship with Hagar. You remember back in Genesis 16. Many years later, God would explicitly tell Solomon not to multiply wives to himself. Of course, Solomon, the wisest man who have ever lived, 
acted unwisely in the same area, he became notorious for his 700 wives and his 300 concubines. So we're faced with a bit of a a moral dilemma here in Genesis 25, verse number one. The Bible never condones bigamy or polygamy or immorality, or slavery, some of these things. But the Bible does record it among the people of God in ancient times. And so regretfully, Abraham took Keturah as his wife slash concubine, among other concubines here in verse number six, and his family grew a lot in the last 35 years of his life. During the first 140 years of Abraham's life, he only had two sons. Ishmael was born, to Hagar when, a- when Abraham was 86 years old, and then Isaac was born to Sarah when Abraham was 100 years old. But now we have the record of many more sons. Look at it in verse number two. And she, that is Keturah, bore to him, to Abraham, Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan begat Sheba and Dedan, and the sons of Dedan were Asherim, Letushim, and Lumim. And the sons of Midian were Ephah, Epher, Hanak, Abida, and Ida. These were the children of, of Keturah. Now, according to my count here in these couple verses, Abraham's descendants by Keturah numbered six sons, seven grandsons, and three great-grandsons there in verses two through four. What do we do with these, these names? The meaning of names in the Bible is, is often significant, but we don't want to make too much out of the meaning of a name, and so we must tread carefully and, and lightly proceed with caution. They, they can tell us maybe a little more than what an obituary can tell us about a, a man. But, but if you're interested, here, here's what these names mean. Zimran means song or singer. He must have been a, a happy fellow, perhaps, always whistling a tune or singing a song. Jokshan means difficult or scandalous. He must have been a rebel, perhaps the black sheep of the family. Medan and Midian mean judgment and strife. They perhaps together caused problems. Ishbak means forsaken, empty, or abandoned. Maybe that hints at some disappointments or some failures. Shua means pity, crying, and humiliation. Perhaps there was some shameful thing in his life. And if you're looking for baby names, I would not recommend any of these names for your new baby. However, if you already have children and you're looking for nicknames, maybe some of these apply. <laughs> right? That would be appropriate. But, but here's what I, wanna, I want us to note from these children of Abraham through Keturah. I offer this insight. A a godly father does not guarantee godly children. A godly mother does not guarantee godly children. Even if Abraham could have demanded obedience of those in his household, and even if Abraham would have modeled godliness before them in the end, he could not legislate their holiness. And these descendants of Abraham departed from the faith of their father. Number two, Abraham's descendants were unfaithful. 
They were unfaithful. And scholars have attempted to learn about the the people groups and the nations that these sons and these grandsons and these great-grandsons became. But the best they can discern is that these six sons were so intermingled with Ishmael's descendants if we were to read verses 12 through 18, they so intermingled so as to be indistinguishable with one exception. There is one of these sons that is distinguishable and that is the son named Midian there in verse number two. The Midianites became significant in the scripture as the antagonists of God's people. So think with me in your Bible knowledge, it was Joseph's brothers who sold Joseph to Midian merchants in Genesis 37 and then took him down into Egypt. Moses fled Egypt and went to the land of Midian, married a daughter of the priest of Midian, Exodus 2. Of course, we are most familiar with the Midianites during the times of the judges. God called Gideon to destroy the Midianites for they caused strife among Israel. You remember that? Look with me at verse number five. And Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac, but Abraham gave gifts to the sons of the concubines, which Abraham had, one of which was Keturah, and while he was still living, he sent them eastward, that is all the sons of the concubines, eastward, away from Isaac, his son, to the country of the east. If Abraham's decision to marry Keturah was unwise, if Abraham's descendants here of his concubines were unfaithful. Number three, Abraham's dispersals were unequal in verses five and six. What Abraham did in executing his last will and testament was a point of disparity. His dispersals were unequal and his dispersals guarded the succession of the covenant and the safety of Isaac. He did this in in two ways. First, his fortune in verse five. The Bible tells us that Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac, but he only gave gifts to the sons of the concubines. This disparity of dispersal was wise and it was appropriate. It was the right thing to do from two different perspectives. First, think of the perspective of Abraham's servant and Abraham's daughter-in-law, Rebecca. Remember that Abraham's servant promised Rebecca and her family that Abraham had given all that he had to Isaac in chapter 24, verse 36. The servant knew the details of Abraham's last will and testament and and it was a good selling point for Abraham's servant in trying to recruit Rebekah to be Isaac's wife. If Abraham didn't come through with that claim, that promise, that inheritance, Abraham's servant and Rebekah would have had a bone to pick with him, if you will. But not only the the perspective of Abraham's servant and Rebekah, also from the perspective and most importantly from the perspective of God. Abraham was honoring God's intent with what he did here in chapter 25, verses five and six, because back when Abraham was 99 years old, God told Abraham very plainly, my covenant I will establish with Isaac. Chapter 17, verse 21. So Abraham honored God with his will. Abraham was able to look ahead. He was able to commit his wealth to the unseen purposes and plans and people of God. 
For that reason, Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac, not to his other descendants. I I might take a quick opportunity to encourage you to honor God with your last will and testament. I might encourage you to not endow the world with your wealth, but rather distribute all that you have in ways that promote and perpetuate God's work. Even if you can't see it now, and even if its fruit will occur long after you're dead and gone, it's right and noble to bless your children. You you may do that. Give them gifts. But don't neglect the work of God because the work of God endures. And I believe that's what Abraham was doing in bequeathing everything to, to Isaac. Over the years, God's people have had the foresight and the commitment to designate a portion of their wealth to the work of God here at Fourth Baptist Church and Christian School, at Central Seminary and WCTS Radio. And, and folks, we are the beneficiaries of their giving so that the gospel can be perpetuated, the ministry can be perpetuated here in this place. I'm so grateful for that. And perhaps many of you have already made plans toward that end. But another insight there in verse number six, there in the middle of verse number six, Abraham had the foresight to take care of this dividing up, the dispersals of his estate. In the middle of verse six, while he was still living. Do you see it there? That's a great example for us. Don't leave your wealth to be be settled by the state or by probates, but rather do your giving while you're living so you're knowing where it's going, right? Your children will fight over it unless you clearly designate, this is what I would have done with my, my wealth and how I would have it designated. And so Abraham, he dispersed things with disparity in an unequal fashion. Everyone got a gift, but all that he had went to Isaac. That was God's purpose, but he didn't only disperse his, um, his fortune there, also his family. His family in verse number six Abraham gave gifts to all the sons of the concubines which Abraham had, and while he was still living, he sent them eastward away from Isaac, his son, to the country of the east. And to protect Isaac's rightful claim in the future, Abraham sent everyone else away. It seems harsh. It seems cruel. But there was, there was a, a method behind his madness Abraham was thinking ahead and he was ensuring a point of separation from those who would threaten God's chosen one, his only son, Isaac. And so the unequal dispersal of these things seems harsh, but I contend it was appropriate, even necessary. Look at verse number seven. This is the sum of the years of Abraham's life which he lived, 175 years. Then Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. This is, as it were, Abraham's obituary. There I would say Abraham's death, number four, was understated. Abraham's death was understated. Now, I do not mean any criticism of the biblical record as God gave it and God preserved it. So please don't misunderstand. I don't mean to criticize what God has given us here. Rather, I mean that after one lives a long life, full of so many happenings and so many achievements and 
and it gets reduced to a couple lines of an obituary. It's kind of an understatement, if you will. But like any good obituary, verse seven tells us of Abraham's days in verse seven. My, my New King James here says the sum of the years in verse number seven. It literally says the days of the years. The Hebrew word there is yom. And, and a year is made up of days and a life is made up of days. And in, in his wisdom, God punctuates time that way. He gives us strength for each day and he provides our daily bread. The sum of the days of Abraham's life was 175 years and then he died. That means that he lived in the land of Canaan exactly 100 years. Years. That means he saw his son, his only son Isaac, reach the age of 75. He was, Isaac was born when Abraham was 100, and he died when he was 75. That means that the age of Abraham would have been such that he would have seen his grandsons Jacob and Esau reach the age of 15. It means that um, because they were, they were born to Isaac when, when Isaac was 60. And if you do the math on the ages of all the patriarchs and all the chronologies here that were given in Genesis 5 and Genesis 11, you might be surprised to learn that Abraham died before Shem. Shem, the son of Noah. For Shem lived 600 years, preceding and surpassing even Abraham's life. And and so Abraham's days are, are numbered there. Secondly, Abraham's death. Verse number eight, Abraham's death. There are numerous ways to mark death. We might note death by the flat line of a heartbeat or perhaps no measurable brain wave activity. In fact, some of us live with that condition, right? There's <laughs> not, not a lot there. Uh, but biblically, Biblically, one's death is marked when verse number eight says that Abraham breathed his last. It was early in Genesis two, verse number seven, that God breathed into man the breath of life and man became a living soul. And here Abraham breathes his last. Verse eight reads that Abraham died full of years. But those words of years are in italics, at least in my English translation. It means that it's supplied by the translators. The text literally in the Hebrew says, Abraham died full. What does that, what does that mean? He died full. The New American Standard, I, I think, translates it, satisfied with life. I hope that when I die, whether young or old, that I will die full. When I, when I say full, I, I don't mean full of material possessions, although Abraham had material possessions. I have material possessions. I don't mean that, that um, Abraham died full, full of life experiences. He had life experiences. I have had life experiences in the vernacular. We might say that so-and-so has lived life to the fullest, the fullest extent. But what does this mean here in the text that Abraham died full? I think that part of the fullness for Abraham was that God had given Abraham the promised son. Abraham's entire life was about the son, the covenant that God made with Abraham and his prosperity depended upon the son. And I would say the same is true for us as believers. Our fullness is not in the things that we own or in the things that we experience or the things that we have, but our fullness comes in the son, 
for it's in the Son that we have life, and life more abundantly. So I would submit to you, every believer can die full. You might not be full of possessions or full of experiences, but you can say, I will die full because I have the Son. But finally, notice Abraham's desires. His desires, many times people will plan their own funerals and they make their intentions known to help the family with decisions during that difficult time. I don't know that Abraham planned his own funeral as such, but he certainly expressed his desired intent upon his death, and I think those desires were honored. Look at verse number nine. And his sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah, which is before Mamre in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar the Hittite, the field which Abraham purchased from the sons of Heth. There Abraham was buried and Sarah his wife. And it came to pass after the death of Abraham that God blessed his sons Isaac, his son Isaac, and Isaac dwelt at Beer the High Roy. Abraham's desires first as a father. It's a remarkable reunion between Isaac and Ishmael. Do you see it there in verse number nine? I think that's probably every parent's desire is that that the family gather whatever divisions that may exist a family gathers together at that time for the burial of the father and we know that this didn't reconcile Isaac and Ishmael however I think it's notable that they buried Abraham together and I believe that Isaac and Ishmael here are cited apart from the sons of Keturah or Abraham's other concubines because God issued direct blessings on both Isaac and Ishmael earlier in, in chapter 17 Abraham's desires not only as a father but also as a husband. Verses nine and 10 tell us that Abraham was buried with his beloved Sarah in that cave that he had purchased for her. Perhaps you remember that in Genesis 23. Of course, the dead are not conscious of their place of of burial. But those who remain, there can be great meaning to have those together in life and in in death. And it's common for husbands and wives to be buried together in in joining burial plots. But then Abraham's, Abraham's desire as a patriarch. Perhaps one of the greatest concerns that we would have in dying is the care of those we leave behind, our children and our grandchildren. There are social security benefits and there are life insurance policies and and such, but our desire would be God's blessing upon them, upon our loved ones, and that blessing was confirmed and fulfilled to Isaac. Now, your notes are complete and you're prepared to go, but there's one insight I wanna leave you with this morning. And it's, um, it's a phrase at the end of verse number eight that we passed over so quickly. It's a phrase there at the end of verse eight that sums up the death of Abraham. The end of verse eight says that he was gathered to his people. Do you see it there? What does that mean? It does not mean that Abraham was buried with his ancestors. Remember, he left them a hundred years earlier back in Ur of the Chaldees when he obeyed the Lord and and left his homeland. The only family member to be buried in the cave of Machpelah was his wife Sarah. So in what sense was Abraham gathered to his people? This is important. 
The Old Testament saints didn't have the full revelation of the resurrection of the body like we have in the New Testament. However, it seems apparent that the early participants in the promises of God, meaning Abraham and in his generations, they were fully expecting to enjoy life after death. In fact, the book of Hebrews tells us that. It was read earlier for us in the service that these all died in faith not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth, temporarily living on the earth, but now they desire a better, that is a heavenly country. So when the Old Testament tells us that Abraham was gathered to his people, what is it telling us? I would submit it's the sense of a heavenly reunion. For you see, death is not a period, it's a comma. Death is not a dash or a date after the dash, but it's a a comma for the moment a believer closes his eyes in death. He is in the presence of his Lord in that heavenly reunion gathered among the saints of God. Paul said to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And that's why Jesus told the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise And Jesus promised life beyond the grave and then demonstrated that with his own resurrection. And we'll celebrate that here in a few short weeks, the Easter holiday. For that reason, the Apostle Paul said, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. And the day in which we die, we are gathered with our people, the people of God. And that death is a time of great reunion. Abraham and the partings of faith is in fact better titled perhaps Abraham and the reunion of faith. I hope you're looking forward to that great reunion of those who've gone before. And of course, our Lord Jesus Christ, let's pray. Oh God in heaven, thank you for your servant, Abraham. Thank you for your friend, Abraham. Thankful, thank you, Lord, for the biography that remains for us to to read and to learn and to understand the ups and downs of his life. Lord, thank you, above all, for your faithfulness to him. Thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness to us. And God, as we're mindful of our own mortality and our own pending death, may we know that our only hope in life and death is Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray for the hearer this morning, perhaps in this room, perhaps listening over the radio, the live stream by way of recording. If they are not certain of their eternal destiny, I pray that in your grace, you will draw them to yourself and grant them the faith to believe in your promises as Abraham did. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.